fucking eight pages of notes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> good good job there, Riley Quinn. Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is Rob trying to like be super prepared because we've got a guest. It's like how when you like, you know, tidy your house before a guest comes over, supposedly. Sure, yeah. <laughs> So welcome to Podcast is Praxis. I'm David. I'm here with Rob. Hello. Jamie. You alright? James. Hello. And special guest, the collective of all people named Nate Bethay. All 12 <laughs> of us in America. A few more around the world, I suppose. Yep, all here. The, uh, the QC botherer himself. A man, who, <laughs> a man who simply just wants to laugh about the Raphael Bear article and did not realize he was going to, in, you know... Arouse the ire of every dude in a wig in this whole fucking country. <laughs> I don't even know what a queen's counselor is or what they do. I have no idea. I, like, what the fuck is any of this shit? What does take the silk mean? Like, Jesus Christ, that sounds like a sex thing. <laughs> it probably I is. mean, considering the content of some of the tweets, it might well be a sex thing. Who's to say? <laughs> I thought QCs were like lawyers, but with like superpowers. Like hyper lawyers or something. Yeah, they're like lawyers who've been doing it a long time, and then I guess they get paid more as like special experts once they get invited into like the secret club or whatever. Yeah, they get to wear the wig <laughs> of respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, geez. we're gonna detour straight off the discourse and talk about uh, a much longer going thing than Twitter, Afghanistan. So. Rob, you've been doing a lot of digging into the fact that it's nearly 20 years and we're still there. Uh, what have you got? Yeah. Um, well, essentially, I, I got sidetracked badly this week uh, and last week uh, because I read a tweet that's from the uh, NATO Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, who said there's no guarantee of peace in Afghanistan. And I literally was just like, oh, wait, we're still there. The US is still there and the UK is still there and NATO is still there. And like... It's almost 20 years, as you say, and I just got very obsessed with it for a few days, essentially. So that's why this is happening. Um, <laughs> so just so you guys know, like as a baseline, uh, the UK still has a thousand troops stationed there. Uh, there's probably more of them once you add in security services, SES, you know, the things they won't tell you about. And uh, the US still has um, 13,000 troops stationed there if you add them all up. Uh, this is all under the mission, NATO mission Resolute Support, uh, which came after Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Freedom's Sentinel. How do they name these things? We used to name things weird, like just weird combos of words. That's how you got, um, what's it called? Operation Overlord uh, for, what's it called? D-Day and things like that. Mm -hmm. there, there, there are weirder ones. Like, um, I want to say the Mogadishu missions was... Uh, like gothic serpent or something like that like they were just weird <laughs> fucking names i don't know cool what a gothic though. a gothic serpent sounds badass but uh but long story short yeah they started naming like they stopped doing the random word generator and just tried to make them sound cool but in like a very uncool way so yeah that's how we wound up with operation just cause for panama desert shield desert storm and then of course uh 
Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. Um, and I'm actually I'm actually an Operation Enduring Freedom veteran in the sense that I was in the military a long time ago, and I was deployed to Afghanistan about I mean fuck eleven years ago, twelve years ago. And uh, during that time, it was still OEF. Does it so, give you um, a sense of satisfaction to see that the freedom is indeed enduring? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, like I said, I, I never, I never doubted uh, freedom's ability to endure any more than I doubted Americans' abilities to never forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is now the uh, longest-running continuous war in U.S. history. Uh, it's currently beating the Vietnam War by more than two years. And there are currently troops stationed in Afghanistan who were born after 9-11, which was sort of the reason NATO, the US, the UK, everybody went in there in the first place. Sorry, 9-11, what was that? Uh, well, I was going to say, he forgot. So I guess all of those <laughs> invocations to never forget were for nothing. But oh, damn. The, the, the important question is, if you go to Afghanistan now, can you buy a copy of Titanic on DVD? Because I distinctly remember being told you weren't allowed to do that under the Taliban. All I know is when I was in <laughs> Afghanistan, I bought a like a homebrew DVD collection of Clive Owen movies that included the film Bent, and I was just like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, but I'm going to watch Clive Owen uh, in a basically a film adapt adaptation of a Broadway or musical theater show where Mick Jagger plays a drag queen. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's all freedom. Freedom endures over there. You can buy fucking any drug you want. Uh, you can't necessarily not get robbed or murdered if you're an Afghan civilian. It's incredibly grim. And also one point I would make is uh, the longer than Vietnam War by 20 years, I think you got to realize that that is actually... No, just just two years. 20 years Oh, yeah, excuse is, me. You know, that, that, two years, excuse me. That guys. challenge coin. Not yet. Yeah, no, but the point, <laughs> the point I was going to make about that was the Vietnam War, yes, lasted for about 18-ish years, but that was from the earliest period of Americans sending advisors after the French withdrew post Dien Bien Phu in the mid-50s to the fall of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon in 1975. So to do it that far, that's why it's that close to Afghanistan. In truth, active duty troops weren't being committed to, like in mass besides advisors in the early 60s. You didn't see like draftees yeah. and units being deployed until about 1964. And by 1973, they were pretty much all gone. There were still special operations units in there until the very end. And then the Marines in the embassy, which hilariously they, I mean, sadly also, they literally left and then had to go back and pick them up because they realized they just fucking left them. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, so when people were like, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's just longer than the Vietnam War. It's like, eh, not really. The Vietnam War was not that long by comparison. Just as a quick recap, like why we actually went there in the first place and how we fucking end up in the situation that we're in now. Um, I say we because it's US, UK, NATO, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think it's actually the first ever uh, NATO mission where they invoked Article 5, the one that says an attack against one and an attack against everybody. So it's the first time NATO went to war for its official stated reason, something we never did uh, manage against the, the Russians. Yep. Um, so essentially, we, we go in and the, the, the mission then was to retaliate, retaliate against Al-Qaeda, root them out and shoot them. And essentially, in under six months... Uh, NATO, everybody, like that's done. The, the, yep. uh, most of Al-Qaeda is dead or in hiding. Uh, the Taliban government, which quote unquote, and there's a whole story behind there, whether or not how much support was given, but the Taliban government is gone. Um, but after that, 
A, the Iraq war happens and nobody seems to care anymore about uh, Afghanistan. And B, it becomes um, what is later dumped, dubbed in internal documents, which we'll get to later, a Christmas tree war, um, where everybody with some say in NATO and especially in the US government uh, wants something else out of that country and it's all folded into the mission. So some people want to go there to eradicate drug production. Some people want to build a democracy. Some people want to create women's better women's rights. Some people just want to go go on and shoot more terrorists, quote unquote. Um, and it becomes essentially the problem. One of the many problems with this fucking war becomes that nobody knows what the actual reason is. We're there. Why we're there, and what the mission is, what what the goal is. And Nate, I don't know if that was your impression while you were there. That like the what the strategy was. A hundred percent, it was. That was that was a concern. I mean, because I think if the U.S. and NATO had withdrawn after the Bonn Accords in I think the end of oh one, beginning of oh two, you would have seen a much different picture. But yeah, they stayed, and I think part of the reason why they stayed was because. Uh, they couldn't pass up the opportunity to have, you know, a military footprint so close to Iran. And they're also because there was this phenomenon of mission creep that, well, now security is getting worse, so we can't leave because then all these fragile gains will be erased. And then, well, we can't leave before the 2005 Afghan presidential election because then it'll be, you know, it'll be violence and there won't be a free election. And then the 2005 election is very obviously rigged for Karzai. And they're like, well, we can't leave now. These are our partners. They're democratically elected. I was there in 09. There was a similarly incredibly rigged election. We didn't do the rigging, but we just it was very obvious what was happening, that the ballots yeah. were being stuffed uh, for Karzai. Um, and I think one of the big things that, that I would add to your summary there is that Afghanistan is a huge country. And while NATO did uh, make troop commitments, they were the only one that was in any way close to the U.S.'s in terms of size, which wasn't that big for most of the war, uh, was the U.K. And even that was a very small contingent. And I mean, one of the biggest sort of defining things, if you were to ask me about my experience in Afghanistan, I was a, a lieutenant when I was there, was while helping out one of the companies. I was in headquarters company for my battalion, and I was working with our BCO, who were in the same base as their headquarters, to do election polling site surveys. And the commander just being like, I don't know what the fuck like, I'm supposed to prioritize here. I've been told in the next 90 days I have to visit 322 different polling sites. None of the coordinates are correct. I also have to maintain the, the district security for seven districts of this province. Jesus. Do shuras, do combat missions. And by the way, one of my platoons has been taken away to do security at the base where Brigade is headquartered. And there are only yeah, three combat platoons in a company. Like... And one that, of the, one of the yeah. NCOs, actually the first sergeant of that company, I remember him saying, he's like, we deployed to Iraq, the same unit deployed to Iraq. I wasn't there for this. In 2006 to 2007, during the beginning of the surge, it was literal unbelievable hell. Our brigade had like 52 killed in action, like well over 200 severely wounded. It was an absolute bloodbath. And he said like, if I mean, in terms of what the US, you know, the military experience in Iraq was. And he said, if you had told me that this would be harder, I would never have believed you in a million years. It's not more dangerous. It's just impossible and we are losing people and we are getting hurt. But like the mission is just so pulling you in so many different directions because apparently we're here to make an election happen and pull security and train the Afghan forces and do yeah, yeah. recons for and count, do, do, do counter narcotics and do counter smuggling. Like there's all this stuff and it's just you can't there were there weren't enough there weren't enough forces to do it. And yeah, also this, this 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. This, this, no, no, no. It's fine. This is exactly um, uh, the, what happens. So uh, you, you, you already mentioned it. The search. So Bush leaves in two thousand eight. Uh, by which time Al Qaeda really is like gone. They're dead. They're moved on to other countries. They're in Pakistan. They're in other places. I was just going to add one thing. You did have a foreign militant presence in Afghanistan when I was there, but um, the one yeah, thing yeah. I'll add, but they were mostly people from, that were jihadis from other Central Asian countries. They were emphatically not Al-Qaeda in like the conception of led by Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and, you know, like Gulf Arabs that were ret- attracting foreign militants. These were jihadis from ne- neighboring countries. So yeah, that's the yeah. one thing I'd throw in there and then I will stop interrupting. Yeah, yeah, no, ex- ex- exactly. I mean, so th- that's one of the many problems in, in this war is that it's not one enemy you're fighting. It's different groups, different tribes, different affiliations, very fluid. Your friend one day, the next is your enemy, the following. Um, and one thing, so under Bush, they unfortunately have managed to equate the Taliban with Al-Qaeda. So even by the time that many of the Taliban, like the large commander, said we want to have peace and make this this work. They said, no, we can't, because there was now a public perception that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were the same thing. And where we've now ended up, you know, many, many years and deaths later, is in a situation um, where there's peace talks going on in Doha, and uh, five of the Al- of the Taliban commanders that are negotiating there at the moment uh, have spent each more than a dozen years in Guantanamo uh, themselves. So it just it's a complete clusterfuck. And then Nate, as you said, like you didn't know why you were there. Well, this get, gets us into the Obama years and the surge, which is two thousand nine. If people remember, this is when he said, "Okay, we're going to send a whole bunch more people in and clear shit up." And then the new stated goal, uh, this is this is the new mission description as given by the Obama presidency. Uh, the definition stated that the objective for U.S. and NATO forces was to reduce the capability and will of the insurgency, support the growth in capacity and capability of the Afghan national security forces, and facilitate improvements in governance and social economic development in order to provide a secure environment for sustainable stability that is observable to the population. Yeah, that sounds unchanged. I mean, that, that sounds like what I was briefed on when we went there. And a friend of mine uh, who was is much younger than me and was deployed, uh, he recently got out of the military, but he was deployed in 2019. He was in the same area that I was in doing the same thing with that same basic mission set. Like it hadn't changed. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a sort of a continual problem that, that we I want to talk about a little bit more about this this complete fuck up with what is it exactly we want out of there. And then by the time 2016 rolls around, uh, of course, it's Hillary that's supposed to take over. And she was quite a hawkish on Afghanistan to begin with. Um, but again, there's an offer from the Taliban to sit down and work out a peace deal and some kind of arrangement. But, and you know, I don't know. Whether it's good or not, I find difficult to answer. But Hillary says, I'm perceived as a champion of women's rights, and therefore I cannot sit down with the Taliban because they're not pro-women's uh, rights. And therefore, in the last years of the Obama presidency and during the 2016 uh, campaign, nothing was done to secure the peace because that might have endangered Hillary's chances to become president. Yep. And I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, the Taliban, you may not like them, and I don't, but the Taliban are Afghan and they're not going anywhere. And the reason why they have a, a, a basis of support is because what the Taliban believe and what they enforce is a kind of social conservatism that, while not like 
completely natural to that part of Afghanistan has been the norm since, well, since the the instability during the the civil the the, the Russian war and then the civil war after, and so like you, you people are like oh we can outlast the taliban it's like what the fuck are you gonna we're gonna move there are we gonna annex afghanistan to be a state like how are you gonna outlast them they live there they're from there yeah it's, it's, and, it's uh, their country this, i mean like it or not and it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah exactly and it's like i think one of the things that people will point out is you, you'll hear people like hillary clinton or uh i remember there were like a columnist in the wall street journal saying this that like you know, we shouldn't be sitting down for peace talks with someone like Golbadin Hekmatyar. He should be on a kill capture list. And it's just like, I hate to break it to you, but like Golbadin Hekmatyar has, he's a big insurgency leader. Uh, he's now been sort of ceremonially added to the Afghan government as a as a peace gesture. He is, uh, he's one of the worst in terms of like the atrocities committed against women, against civilians, against captured, uh, you know, fighters from rival sides, stuff like that. The thing about it is with people like that is, I mean, they represent a, a chunk of the population and they have been fighting in Afghanistan since we started funneling money to them in the eighties. And those people are not going to disappear. You know, like the insurgency is not the Taliban led by Mullah Omar. It kind of wasn't ever again after 2001, the insurgency is lots of different groups that are in many ways indistinguishable from the Mujahideen that fought each other in the civil war. Yeah, you know, and some of them had been had bought into the Afghan government primarily in places like um, the the post two thousand one Afghan government places in the north. You know, there's a huge horrible war criminal guy named Abdul Rashid Dostum, uh, who's Uzbek, and he's in like a you know a permanent role for life as like a chief of staff, ceremonial chief of staff to the Afghan military, because if you keep him happy, then you keep Uzbeks happy, and then they won't fucking also revolt. So, I mean, the idea that you can just clean house of all these people with blood on their hands, like, no, you really can't. And yeah. the U.S. couldn't, even if it wanted to. And it's very easy for a columnist in fucking Washington, D.C. to say, like, this is imp- imp- intolerable, or for a presidential campaign to say that. But yeah, the fact of the matter is, you have to talk to them, because you, uh, uh, like, if you think you can just grind them into the dust and wait them out you can't these yeah. are the same guys who fought the russians who then fought each other who then fought us like that's not going to go away yeah and like if you think they're going to die off like their kids are doing it too like you know hekmat yar's son is basically running his former organization there's a guy named um jalaladin Hakani, who's another one his son sirajadin Hakani, runs the Hakani network because i'm pretty sure jalaladin is dead or he's very very old and can't do it anymore well, I mean, he was one of the the, the the great warlords of the Soviet invasion era. I mean, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hakani, Dostum, like all these people have either been folded into the Afghan government or are in the process of getting there. I mean, it's it's not like it's not like the US ahead, doesn't have form for pulling in people from you know previous regimes that were at war with and putting them in high place positions. <laughs> no, no I maintain that if no. the Taliban had a you know rocket division, then the outcome might have been very different <laughs> for the post-war consensus. I mean, I think it's just one of those things where, yeah, they. This is the situation as it stands. If you don't like it, great, but like everything that could have been tried has been tried at this point. 
aside from mm-hmm. just like wholesale fucking war crimes like nuclear weapons and shit so well, we're not going to win we're not going to win a war like a force on force war we're not going to win against an insurgency at this point the only thing you can do is negotiate for better terms to leave we lost the war fucking deal with it stop fighting the war well, because you, it's you, killing civilians you, endlessly you, you say the only way we can win is is with more war crimes and would it surprise you to know and we'll get to that a bit later that um, more war <laughs> crimes is essentially the strategy that's being tried at the moment oh i know like i said i know that they they basically found ways to not report civilian casualties and they've been doing a lot more aggressive aerial bombardment campaigns and stuff like that and it's been killing way more civilians that was the mo in syria and um you know in the like iraqi syria and kurdistan areas under trump and similarly in afghanistan they they uh and in yemen too they've basically been like we don't care about civilian casualties anymore and wow wouldn't yeah. you know it? We haven't won the war. I mean, just to yeah. put things in, in into a sort of bigger context, so just like some numbers that I've pulled together doing this research. Um, since 2001, over 775,000 US troops, US troops have been deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, they've taken over 2,300 dead and more than 20,000 wounded. Um, the UK has lost 454 uh, deaths and give or take 10,000 wounded, which is different because it's hard to tell if some categories overlap. Uh, the Afghanistan army, for whatever it is, lost more than 60,000 soldiers. Um, at least 100,000 civilians are dead, um, more than 10,000 of which were in 2019 alone. So the security situation after 18 years of war has clearly improved. Um, and just mm. as a bonus, um, more than 70 journalists have died and 400 plus aid workers. So that's just the, the body count uh, after 19 years. Uh, in terms of finance, it's hard to really get a good grip on it because so much is it is in budgets that you can't get public access to. Um, but between in but the US alone, in, between the D- Department of Defense, Department of State, and Department of International Development, Development have spent almost one trillion dollars, which is a thousand billion, you know, not money that you could have used elsewhere for better things. Um, and that probably excludes all money uh, going to the intelligence services like the CIA and doesn't include NATO spending. Um, the UK only has spent 21 billion pounds, um, but that's probably a higher number as well. And an additional three billion in development aid, which is, of course, going uh, very great. Of course, all that development aid the estimation is is that 90% of all the aid that we ever gave to Afghanistan over 20 years uh, is probably overkill or too much. Essentially, what we've tried to do is like turbocharge nation building uh, by just spending more money. So we just built more empty schools, more empty hospitals, and then we just thought, well, that's the way forward. It's funny you mentioned the money because I've had a theory for a while. You know how we did that, you know, the very first ever audit of the Pentagon and they were trying to figure out where all the money had gone. And then it came up that there was several billion, just like they couldn't explain where it went. I've often thought that basically it moved through Afghanistan to line someone's pockets blatantly illegally on the grounds that no one would ever actually notice in the scrum. And I honestly think that's one of the contributing factors to this thing going on for so long. It could well be. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Something that I would point out is I this is a fact from 10 years ago, maybe longer ago. But in the time, in and around the time that I was there, when I was really paying attention to the news or like immediately post coming home, mm. 
there was um, a report that on average, $3 million in cash left Kabul airport on, in pallets. Yes, the pallet per story. Per day. And that was just what was being legally declared. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine the sheer volume of money that has gone. And, and, and if you talk to Afghans about this, and like I, I, there are plenty of folks out there uh, you know, who, who have platforms, um, they'll tell you that, I mean, the expectation is you'll just encounter people who were connected and now they own, you know, villas in Dubai and stuff. Um, and that's where the money's gone. You know, it's gone to basically warlords who are both, who are either in Afghanistan or have left. Uh, and you know, it's not technically what they did is not illegal. And, you know, I mean, I remember being asked to figure out how much it would cost, to get a hospital repainted uh, in our one of our districts, oh, and, right. a con- and a contractor wanted one hundred and twenty thousand dollars to do it. Now, this is a country where you can buy the paint the paint supplies required for about probably about five thousand dollars at most, and I mean even paying a good wage like the a good wage at the time in Afghanistan would have been about a dollar a day per worker. Like it's a country where the average, the, the the at the time the the GDP was something like, or the um, per capita was something like a thousand dollars a year. Yeah, yeah, it's but still horrible. They were, it's but still... they knew they could charge because of the inflation involved, and obviously the security situation. But like, this was in the city center. Like, you know, it's a kind of thing. It's just that situation has become normal. You've created this artificial bubble economy with all of the money being dumped into it. Just, yeah, just as a brief sort of intermission, because this is quite a serious topic, but there were a few bits that I just thought were quite funny um, that I wanted to mention. Oh, God, please. Um, is is in 2010, um, during the uh, Tory Liberal Coalition, when the war was also going on, um, Andrew Mitchell MP, uh, he later famous of uh, Plebgate, um, oh, created yeah. what... Uh, created what he called a business challenge fund to create new enterprises in Afghanistan, which was seen as the way out. Um, this business challenge fund was part of a bigger drive where we cut hundreds of millions of pounds from foreign aid elsewhere in the world and put it all in uh, Afghanistan to speed up the troop withdrawals. Though, like how that A, a fits into B is a bit of a mystery. Um, anybody want to Buy guess more how... Mopeds. Anybody want to guess how much the business challenge fund to create new enterprises was? How much we, uh, well, Andrew Mitchell MP, or he of Plebgate spent? Uh, I'm going to guess 150 million pounds. Any other bids? I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm going to go dead low. I'm going to say like 10 grand or something stupid like this. <laughs> um, five million. Uh, yeah, David, you're the closest. We spent six million quid to uh, for a Afghanistan business challenge fund. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, sounds about right. Any Tories wanting to invest in, like you know, getting business going and people working and stuff, it's going to be a low number because you only need to look at the DWP to see that they don't put that much money in to make those things happen. I was just going to say how much how much of that was spent on uh, Rory Stewart doing walking tours. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is I read his book when I was a college student, and I was like, "Oh wow, this guy seems so cool." My friend's like, "Dude, this guy is like your alter ego in Britain," and now I'm like, "That fucking Tory, that piece of shit, that fucking weird bony freak, fuck you!" Like, if I if I had just not known anything about Britain, I could have thought of Rory Stewart as like the sort of you know, adventuring eccentric, but now I'm just like, what a piece of shit. I bet the QCs uh, never, love him, though. 
<laughs> oh, I'm sure they do. Ne- never meet your heroes, man. That's the first rule, isn't it? <laughs> he could have stayed in your flat, Nate, during his walking tour. You could have invited him to, to, to sleep on your sofa. That's true, yeah. I mean, I uh, uh, I would have been... Um, I would have been about 17 years old and living in Carmel, Indiana when he walked across Afghanistan. <laughs> but uh, yes, notionally, if I owned a place in Afghanistan, I, for some reason, I could have been like, Rory, you can crash at my place in Kabul. Oh, the way you, I have it. You've been or, to you, Afghanistan, Nate. That means you've always been in Afghanistan. That's how it works, right? I was going to say, true, yeah. how, do, how do we know there wasn't another Nate Bathia in Afghanistan at the time? That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the, you heard there was only one Jewish guy left in Kabul, but maybe there was a second and his name was Nate Bathia for some reason. <laughs> oh. Um, oh. But yeah, you were, Nate, you were talking about um, inflation. Uh, this is from the uh, Afghan papers, which we'll get to in a second. Um, one unidentified contractor told government interviewers that he was expected to dole out $3 million uh, daily for projects in a single Afghan district, which is roughly the size of a U.S. county. He once asked a visiting congressman whether the lawmaker could responsibly spend that kind of money back home. The congressman said, hell no, to which the contractor replied, well, sir, that's what you've just obliged us to spend and i'm doing it all for communities that live in mud huts with no windows yeah i mean i think the funny thing is i think back on it i'm like god i could have given given us that fucking money we could have found some way that we would have been able to do something with it but like i remember being told like no sorry you you can't spend usaid money on this you can only spend usaid money on like a project to build public toilets in the middle of fucking nowhere, like the literal middle of fucking nowhere. And just, there was this whole frustration with USAID not really liking working with the military, but then not being able to go out and do stuff without military security and things like that. So yeah, it's, that's a disaster. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I, that, that number doesn't jive with my experience, but also my experience was getting kind of shoehorned into some of these projects. Who knows what the overall budget for like, provincial reconstruction was and yeah i mean i wouldn't call them mud huts i mean they're like adobe compounds like they are made out of mud but like that's the building material yeah but yeah i mean you'll go in a village and maybe a rich person has a single generator nowadays there's more solar panels back in those days they were kind of novelties i saw people charging motorcycle using motorcycle headlights to charge their cell phones and stuff like that because no one had power you know what i mean like it's not they just it's it's not it's not even really reconstruction it's construction there's all these places have been they're incredibly rural and remote and isolated and you know in some places like they don't even speak either of the majority languages in afghanistan you know you'll get into some of these really remote places where they speak you know like interpreters can't communicate with them because unless your interpreter speaks like pashai or something like they they won't be able to talk so i mean it's a yeah it's 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 very very undeveloped but i mean that's because it's been at it's been at the crossroads of like imperial war for fucking 40 years now 41 years do you know it's funny you mention that because so i don't really talk about this very much because i'm actually a little bit ashamed of it my grandfather um was in the, the british army do you want to guess what he was doing back in the day he was doing police action in kandahar Really? At, wow. Yeah, under Britain, like there's a huge generational gap between me and my now deceased father, and my now deceased father and my grandfather, and uh, yeah, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because there's a couple of <laughs> there's a couple of family yeah. stories I've heard which are 
you know, I mean, they, they basically, like, I mean, obviously the British Empire much kind of crueler about it. They would just, like, they just go out and if anyone had done anything that was even remotely um, confrontational, then they would, like, torch houses and all that kind of thing. Um, so I guess maybe what we're doing now, I'm looking forward to that chapter from you, Rob, in a bit. Uh, um, yeah, but they, yeah. They, they also, like, th- there were stories where they're like, Do you know, actually, we could probably settle these people down for very little, like, effort. Um, if we just like did this, this and this, or if we just spent some of the, you know, the money which we know is being used on certain things in the country, if we just kind of redirected it to this, that'd probably, you know, just calm things down a bit. But there was no, no one was going to make a profit off of that. Um, and apparently my, my grandfather became very, very jaded from that whole thing in his own kind of way, because again, it was uh, on the ground seeing, you know, people have grievances which are very legitimate in many cases. They're not like, you know, religiously driven or ideologically driven in like a complicated way. They're very simple issues of like human justice. And they'd be very easy to calm down with a little bit of kind of, you know, community investment. I know it's a fucking bullshit term, but you, you get what I'm saying here. But um, no, you can't do it because someone somewhere has to make a profit off of it um, through some kind of version of subcontracting. Yeah. And this was back, this was back like, you know, end of the, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century sort of thing. Yeah. So if you're, there's, there's a really good, if you want to read a bit more about the history, there's a very good book called uh, Return of a King by a historian called William Dalrymple about the first uh, Anglo-Afghan war from 1839 to 42. And like, if you want to, like, if you, I've read that two years ago, I think. And it's like, if you read that, it's eer- absolutely eerie how exactly the same that book is with what's going on right now, essentially. I do like the way that all this money is going about and it, the way it's being spent. It's got proper, like, Soviet trope vibes. Like, well, we could actually spend the money on the people. Uh, no, no, new hospital. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is that uh, you got to bear in mind, too, is that there really was never and still is not a particularly effective government to speak of in some of the more restive provinces. Like if depending on where you are in Afghanistan, it's entirely possible that if, you know, the uh, if the foreign troop presence disappeared overnight or the ability for foreign troops to respond disappeared overnight, that these places would be completely overrun. And in some cases Mm. they have been. And in yeah. other cases, the Taliban have been overrun by Daesh, which is not the same as ISIS in the Levant because they're they call themselves Daesh, but they're just sort of like an offshoot of the same insurgency. Uh, you actually have situations in which the U.S. is coordinating with the Taliban to do airstrikes on Daesh, which is hilarious to me, given <laughs> how how insane everybody was about who the Taliban were when I was there. Like it. The ability for the Afghan government to secure its own situation has been hampered by the fact that their military, I mean, the attrition rates are awful. The troops don't get paid very well. They don't get logistically handled very well. Like, lots of them die in combat. Like, it's grim as hell, man. And so you're in this situation where, like everyone wants to spend money because they think the money will stop it being restive and stuff like that. But you can't really secure anywhere uh, without yeah. a, a bigger presence of someone who can secure it. 
And if it's foreign troops, you're going to piss more people off anyway. You don't want it to be foreign troops. If it's local, if it's Afghan troops, great. But like, if they're incompetent and corrupt and fucking committing crimes against people, that's no good either. And so you find yourself in this situation where, like, you kind of need there to be a negotiated truce because there is no way for the Afghan government to handle it competently and not piss so many more people off that they wind up supporting the insurgency. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's in the sort of just the last little or thing that I just, I mean, it's either desperate or funny, but I just choose to find it funny is that there were uh, a lot of reports that the the Afghan police forces were stealing so much uh, fuel from U.S. bases to sell on in, in the local black markets that literally they would come and go and they would reek of petrol all through walking through the base just because they were just trousering so much U.S. Uh, military petrol, which is I just thought was sort of an amazing signifier that, you know, that was going on and nothing was being done about it. I'm uh, I'm disappointed that none of your funny things were a 20-tweet thread about how Marvel's Avengers would have handled things. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, no, not tonight. I want to retain what is ever left of my sanity. <laughs> Do you know, um, it's like I, I almost, I almost said, "Oh, can you imagine how they'd be writing about the Avengers if it was going on now?" And I'm like, "Motherfucker, this entire episode is about how it is going on now. It's just become such <laughs> background static that is beneath the notice of these cutting edge satirists on Twitter." Well, Jesus. I mean, the fir- the, the first um, Iron Man has a whole scene where he builds his suit oh, sh- to blast his way out of terrorists in what I assumed was Afghanistan. So, you know. <laughs> Shit, do you know, I think it was. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that's, that's fucking, that's enervating, that is. Full circle, baby. Yeah, anyway, in 2019, and this was like, this was a really big story, but because 2019 was a very dumb year as well, um, it didn't really get the attention it deserved. The Washington Post released uh, what is called the Afghan Papers, uh, so similar to the Pentagon Papers, and these oh, were... Yeah. These are 2,000 documents from um, a thing called the Office of the Special Investigator. Let me try that again. 2,000 documents from the Office of the Special Investigator General for Afghan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, um, where they interviewed 400 people. Um, they got they had notes from Donald Rumsfeld, um, and all of these were supposed to be confidential files where the document was like the official version was to be really light. Um, but the Washington Post sued for three years to get their hands on the actual original documents. Um, and what is in them is really like genuinely quite shocking. But because it's Afghanistan and because this was also in the tr- in the uh, Trump season, it just it, it, it really didn't go anywhere. But I want to give you some some quick uh, highlights in it. Um, in this is under Bush and, and under Rumsfeld. Um, they go out of their way to find like numbers that make everything sound really good. That's, that's everything's really positive. So in t- October 2006, Rumsfeld team uh, did a speech for him where they had more than 50 promising facts and figures uh, from the numbers of women trained in improved poultry management, more than 19,000, or uh, improvement of the average speed on most roads by up to 300%. So this, these things were always portrayed as the positives uh, of this. However, inside the administration, uh, very senior officials working directly for Rumsfeld um, 
gave very different reports saying there is giant popular discontent, everything's going to shit, the Taliban is stronger than ever, and Pakistan, the US ally, is to, to thank for it. In 2006, they were still, um, in, sorry, in 2016, the US is still insisting that progress is being made. Um, yeah, but you've got to understand, it's like the war's being run by numbers fuckstein. And so you just got to focus on the things that number fucking can get a handle on, which is fucking around with numbers. Yeah, I mean, the, not on, but not only was the deception external, so towards like rubes like us, but it was also internal. Um, like there was just literally very little tolerance for people feeding up, you know, shits going wrong uh, up the chain. And this bit I just found so I don't know. I'm just gonna read it. Um, bad news was often stifled. The interviewee said. There was more freedom to share bad news if it was small. We were running over kids with our armored vehicles because those things could be changed with small policy directives. But when we tried to air larger strategic concerns about the willingness, capacity or corruption of the Afghan government, it was clear that that kind of commentary was not welcome. Yeah, I mean, it's that that, that drives with my experience 100%. I mean, I think the corruption was endemic uh, to the government itself, I mean, the level of oversight, we'll put it this way, there was no real oversight on the part of the Afghan government for its own, uh, you know, component, constituent elements. All the governors are appointed by the president in the Afghan political system. And, uh, like, as long as they don't piss the governor off too much, or correction the president off too much, I mean, they can pretty much get away with anything. And, I mean, yeah, you know, we had people begging us for American diesel fuel because all of their fuel budgets had been filched by their superiors and things like that. I mean, so much of uh, of what they did for in personnel inspections for Afghan troops were basically roundabout ways to actually force a situation where they would have to verify every single person on the rolls because they would then, in doing so, discover that the rolls were inflated by 200%. Yeah. There just were no soldiers. Like, that kind of a thing. You know, they were still getting paid. Like, that kind of thing, like, yeah, you, 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 people knew it, but I mean, there was no appetite to tackle it because, well, any governor who tried to tackle that would get removed. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that's arbitrarily. Yeah. I mean, so in, in 2015, um, an, an unidentified former State Department official told these interviewers the time frame for creating a strong central government in Afghanistan is about 100 years. Obviously, time that we don't have and you know does anybody think we'll still be there in 80 years i mean i don't doubt i don't think it's impossible but you know i mean we would be were not for fact i'm pretty sure the nation states involved won't be around in 80 years yeah. at least not in their present form yeah if this wasn't actually like all put together by climate change denials like they could have just said climate change will sort it all out anyway yeah I mean, and this is not just like, I don't want to pretend this is only the, the US, like the UK was up to its tits in, in doing stupid shit um, as <laughs> well. Uh, if you remember b back in the time when like UA, the UK was doing real combat operation, it was mainly in the Helmand province that that was mm -hmm, supposed mm -hmm. to be the UK's uh, zone. Um, and this is the an interview with David Evans, the gen UK chief general and chief of staff, head of NATO forces in Afghanistan 2006-2007. Um, where among the statements in his interview, he says, uh, in Hellman, there was only one young female uh, international aid officer responsible for doing all stabilization programs 
in the entire province of Helmand at one point. The rest of them had all left because the security situation was so bad they couldn't do any uh, aid. So that fucking budget for uh, Millennium Challenge new businesses wasn't even going to get spent if it could be. Um, yeah, one of the things that was a huge shocker for me was spending a little bit of time in um, Parwan province where Bagram Airfield is situated mm-hmm. because there they were actually doing a lot of stuff with NGOs and were out, you know, a lot out in the community. Whereas in Paktika where I was, I mean, the only things that were happening were militarized aid. There were no NGOs because they couldn't operate. It was just too dangerous. Yeah. Like just driving from Kabul to, to Sharana, which is the capital of Paktika you were taking your life in your hands if you thought if there was anything about you that was identifiable with the Afghan government. And if you were a foreign aid worker, even if you weren't like you'd, you'd get arrested, you'd get detained and, you know, held for ransom. Yeah. Uh, this happened to journalists all the time. It happened to aid workers. Like even in places like Badashan, which aren't particularly active with the insurgency, it's a really remote part in the Northeastern part of the country. You know, there was an incident I want to say sometime in the last 10 years, my memory is hazy on the date where a guest house full of UN aid workers was just robbed by bandits and like seven people were murdered. Like that wasn't a, like a political ideological thing. It was just, it's just dangerous and poor and unstable. You yeah. know what I mean? So the ability for foreign aid workers or any kind of aid to happen, like they've militarized it in a sense that that, you know, suited the agenda at the time. And now the situation is so dangerous everywhere that you basically cannot operate anywhere besides, uh, I would say, I mean, and don't quote me on this, but my my recollection is it is safer to operate in Kabul City, in Mazar-e-Sharif, and maybe, maybe in Kandahar City, but that's a little bit iffy. If you try to go to a place like Lashkargah, the capital of Hillman, like, you're just not going to be able to operate there. Yeah. If you go to, you know, some of the more far-flung areas. If you go to Ghazni City, eh, I wouldn't do it. I certainly wouldn't want to try to drive from Kabul to Ghazni. You know, if you go to Kalat in um, Uruzgan, like, yeah, I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't like, uh, I, I maybe Gardez in Paktia, but like I, a lot of folks have died in, in Paktia. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not, you can't do it. It's fundamentally impossible. And no aid mm. group, no aid organization will take on that risk because when you do the frank analysis of what the risk entails, it is so unbelievably dangerous. And that is the fault of ISAF, of the, you know, NATO uh, occupation force, you know? Yeah, so that's, so, that's our fault. It, it's almost like if you remove the force that underlies the law and order, I'm going to use the term very loosely, consensus within a country, and then make absolutely no efforts to replace it with anything that is actually you know, approaches a political consensus as it might exist within a country. It's almost as if it's impossible to create law and order, but by force of arms constantly being present. Weird. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. So essentially, after after all this blood has been spilled, after all this treasure has been wasted, after we've sent combined maybe up to a million soldiers to this, this poor country. Um, so what are some of the results? Well, the results are that the Afghan army... Nate, as you were talking about earlier, is essentially a, a joke. Um, there are tens of thousands of non-existent soldiers who are just on the payroll uh, to draw funds because the, U- the Afghan army is essentially fully funded by the UK, UK US and others. Um, there's so much corruption in the country that it is better to call it a kleptocracy rather than anything else. And it is also acknowledged that people who seek 
political public office don't do that to do anything for people. They do it because they know they'll be in a position to extract bribes and extort other people. Um, one third of the Afghan police is on drugs. Um, and the narco traffickers, the people who grow the drugs, are probably a stronger central authority than the actual Afghan government. And the last months of 2019 were the deadliest month for, for civilians recorded in a whole decade. So, you know, this, these are the, the prizes we have won for, for, for whatever the fuck it is we were supposed to be uh, doing there. Um, there was also a presidential election in 2019 where the turnout was possibly 25%, but probably lower if you, can't, if you discount all the fake ballots. Uh, where both candidates, both major candidates, immediately claimed victory um, and refused to step down. Uh, but President Ghani, the current president, uh, won in the end after a long, drawn-out negotiation uh, where the other guy, Dr. Abdullah, was supposed to become the uh, prime minister and they would share power. Um, five minutes after that agreement, um, President Ghani essentially sidelined Abdullah and the relationships between the two men are described by the Foreign Office as, quote-unquote, horrible. Um, you may be asking... It's proper third-world country evils, isn't it, when the, the outgoing president really doesn't get on with the incoming president, and there's just no <laughs> rectifying that. That's really bad. Yeah, when, when a nation has a contest as to who actually won an election, um, <laughs> yeah, it's not, not the best, really not the best. Yeah, so we briefly touched on it before in terms of what are we doing for security? And I said, well, we're just committing more war crimes. This is the bit about the war crimes. Oh, uh, God. There, was a, there was a big piece in The Intercept recently by Andrew Quilty um, that Afghan paramilitary units are acting as death squads under CIA command and with US military support. Uh, among many other pleasant things, they have attacked religious schools, madrasas, and killed children as young as eight years old. Um, the Americans choose the targets, and these are colloquially known as jackpots. Um, we'll put mm. the article link in the show notes. I'll just read two bits from it and then hopefully move on. Um, residents from four districts in Wardak, Nurk, Chak, Syedabad, and Daimirdar spoke of a string of massacres, executions, mutilations, forced disappearances, attacks on medical facilities, and airstrikes targeting structures known to house uh, civilians. This is an eyewitness account of one such attack by one of these Afghan death squads um, in a place called Dadaok Hail. Uh, this is a direct quote. Soldiers entered the village madrasa and came out with several boys. We heard the boys begging for their lives, screaming and crying, said uh, Safula Manad, 27. Then we heard the shooting. At dawn, an old man discovered a pile of six boys' bodies at the mouth of an irrigation channel. The youngest victim was 10 years old. Sounds like some terrorist shit. Yeah. Essentially, I mean, yeah. the piece later goes on literally to quote Afghan saying, this is just terrorism. This is what we had before. What's, what's the point? Mm. There's a there's a British Army veteran, uh, an anti-war activist, Joe Glenton. He actually went back to Afghanistan uh, to film a video about this topic, about uh, the zero one zero two units, which are uh, not on, not just trained by by NATO and I believe primarily by the U.S., uh, but also don't really operate, you know, within the within the uh, command structure of the Afghan military. 
and these sorts of things. Like, yeah, it's it's there's just complete impunity. I mean, which if you want to complain about what things were like under the you know the in the the PDPA or the DRA, the the communist era of Afghanistan, or under the Soviet military, it's like well, you can't really you can't condemn that and say Afghanistan is somehow better under NATO and then look yeah. at a NATO creation that's murdering children yeah. with imp- total impunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, of course, the the question and the, the piece in the interdept goes on to say, well, there is a new government and maybe under Biden, you know, there's some of these CIA officers that are literally killing children will be brought to justice. But of course, Joe Biden is one of the people under the Obama surge who was most in favor of increasing special ops, drones, CIA strikes as a way to pacify the country. So like, don't hold your breath. Mm. Um, now, you might be wondering in all of this, like, what the fuck is the UK doing? Because we've still got a thousand troops there who are, quote unquote, mainly there for training purposes. Um, uh-huh. And in there was literally just a new uh, report by the House of Lords International Committee, which was released uh, this month. Uh, this, by the way, was the first official report um, where uh, witnesses were called, questions were asked of people from Afghanistan, people from uh, Britain, uh, the soldiers, everybody. Um, anybody want to take a guess at when the last time that was that any official organ of the British parliamentary system asked questions, formal questions about the war in Afghanistan in such a committee? When was the last time before now that that happened? 2003. Not quite as bad as that, but 2014. So, you know, seven years. We, we're just, man, you know. Um, the UK, by the way, remains a major donor to Afghanistan. Uh, we've paid in, we're going to pay this year 155 million more pounds for reconstruction, education, and humanitarian support. So that's outside the defense budget. One of my favorite his- hilarious bits um, that I thought was that the UK embassy in uh, Kabul has pledged to create 35,000 jobs in Afghanistan by 2023. Better fucking get cracking on it. (laughs) (laughs) And given that there's currently uh, extensive negotiations going on between the US and the Taliban, there's an interesting question is if the US withdraws, and it's not unlikely that they might, um, and the Taliban ends up in government, will will the UK with its aid budget end up sponsoring terrorism? So these are, um, at, at the end, if you remember, I talked a bit earlier about, this is, all, this is the last bit of it. Um, if you remember, I said that when the war began, it was about Al-Qaeda and then it became, became this Christmas tree thing, right? With everybody said, no, it's about women's rights, it's about democracy, it's about nation building, it's about something or other, eradicating drugs. Um, this is the closing of the House of Lords report. Um Asking the question, A, why are we there? And B, why should we stay there? Uh, so they had a pretty somebody pretty high up in the foreign office to come and, and answer that question. The answer was, um, we need to stay there because drugs are bad. Uh, 95% of all heroin consumed in the UK today comes from Afghanistan. Uh, so we need to stay there to er- eradicate drugs, which we've never managed in 20 years. And also we need to stay there because the national, this is a quote, the national security threats that spill out of failed or even fragile states affect us at home or our allies. Um, the government also stated that we must stay there because we must defend the political legacy of the West's intervention since 2001. 
So we must uh, stay there because otherwise we might have to admit that we're wrong. I really love I, the war on drugs like angle of this because it's like we really want them to just like get on and build their economy up and you know have a functioning GDP. Oh wait, no, not like that. No, stop. Yeah, I was, I was just, I was just thinking there. If our aim is to eliminate like the ninety-five percent of heroin that comes from Afghanistan, for the amount of money we've spent on the war, would it not be cheaper to just buy all the heroin? <laughs> well, you say that, but for a while, that was our policy to do exactly that and then burn it. <laughs> oh. Which is hilarious because I mean, like there are uses for medical heroin or medical opiates that you can do, you can derive naturally as well as you know from yeah. synthetic materials. And yeah, but also something that I was pointed out. A, too, um, that... Sorry, wasn't there a, a news report? Yeah. About... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where the guys the guy, try to do the report in front of the big in pile of, of a, in front of a big pile poppies. of burning drugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's just fucking getting progressively more and more at his tits. It was a massive, massive fuck off pile of marijuana. Um, All right, okay. If it was poppies, it would have been like a really fucking grim, actually. But uh, <laughs> Sorry, I haven't seen really this. turned can into you, a snuff can recording. Somebody... <laughs> can somebody explain? It? I haven't seen it. Oh, the guy's just standing in front of a big pile of burning drugs, and he's just getting progressively more and more high off the fumes from it, and he just cannot <laughs> deliver the report. It's great. Uh, okay. Yeah. Put a link in the show notes. Yeah. The uh, uh, what was great was a there's a coda to that, which is that the entire uh, division or whatever it was that was involved in the burning of the drugs that day just basically had to call maneuvers and everything off that day because literally everyone <laughs> within like a square mile got high from the sheer amount that they burned. So. Um, yeah, so sorry, briefly back to the Lord's report and then we'll wrap this bit up. Um, Lord Ahmad said it was important um, for the UK's legacy in Afghanistan would be a- enabling Afghan girls to realize their full potential through education. <sighs> Anybody care to guess how many girls and women are being educated as a percentage of their population uh, in Afghanistan today? And by educate, I mean that in the most air quoting. I would gather that, on average, it's probably less than a quarter. Yeah, it's about and 15%. In, and in in uh, in certain provinces, it's probably close to zero. Probably close what to is, zero. What, is, what does it say? Uh, 15%. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it was next to zero where, where I worked. And where I worked, the adult male literacy rate was about 10% in 2009. Yeah. Uh, Baroness Gordy, meanwhile, said that the UK's legacy in Afghanistan should be to help the Afghan government to start determining its own affairs in terms of democracy, election and governments. Again, something else that's been a raging success for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is my maybe one of my favorite bits, uh, given that, as I've said, uh, more than 70 journalists have died uh, covering Afghanistan. On media freedom, the Foreign Office said the British Embassy in Kabul provided capacity building for Afghan government communicators and programming to promote open debate. In 2019-20, it implemented projects worth around £300,000 to improve access to information, journalist safety, and support female journalists. I love to challenge insurgents to debate. The embassy maintains a regular and honest dialogue with the government on media freedom in the country. Uh, Yeah, and apparently there's an integrated review of everything that's been going on in terms of UK and Afghanistan um, that's been out there for years. Nobody's seen hide or hair of it, um, but I'm assuming it's going to say pretty much the same as this Lord's report. 
So, 20 years later, everybody, congratulations. Yay. Do you know, it. we talk about, like, the reason why we're still there, okay? And there is one through Fred Follerback, so I'll admit something. To kind of prepare for this episode today, I wanted to get in the mindset. And I watched, of all fucking things, I watched Falling Down, the movie with Michael Douglas, if oh, you guys are familiar movie. with it. Yeah, excellent movie. Thoroughly recommend it. Um, it's filmed back in the 80s, and, you know, it's about a guy who essentially is, like, you know... He's unemployed, he's divorced, he's extremely divorced and, un- and unemployed, and he goes on a rampage, basically. Um, and it's very reactionary, but it's a kind of, it's a, it's a portrait that is both hysterically funny, deeply depressing, and, like, manages to paint the villain as a victim, which is quite a delicate thing to do. And all throughout my watching it, I'm kind of thinking that, you know, the reason we're sticking around in these countries really is just because of em- imperial decay. Because threaded through all of those explanations you gave was Britain must be doing something, almost as a prestige project, almost as saying, look, we still got it, we still got some sort of purchase, we're still gonna make it work. And it's the same kinda it's the same kind of impulse that leads extremely divorced, um, extremely kinda, you know, alienated and ostracized kinda, you know, men to basically try and insist that the world conform to their expectations of it. Because yeah. I, I don't think there's really any other explanation for the populace, like, continuing popular support in some quarters for these sort of interventions. There's still people, because here's the thing, we talk about, you know, people feathering an Estonia and the rest of it, but this was built on consensus building, and there are still people in the UK who are like, oh, well, you know, we, we really should still be over there. And uh, I, I really don't think you can explain it other than with the poison of, you know, nationalist pride and the decay of empire. Mm. Yeah. Well... I mean, Funny, funny you should say that, right? Oh no. I'm gonna, I'm well, gonna segue is on to the next topic, which is yes, this lovely do. article that Rob got for us. Proud to be English. How we can shape a progressive patriotism. There's an article that dropped in the Observer the other day by Julian <sighs> Coleman. Yeah, I mean I yeah. wanna did want to do some 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 Britain games and you know. Like <laughs> Yeah. Especially with Nate here, who who you know is maybe the best observer of, of whatever the fuck's going on. Okay, see, I Nate, you love the English mind, don't you? Well, I mean, it's one of those things where because I'm not from here, you know, I I might have serious blind spots about like the sheer stupidity of America because I grew up in America, but because I'm not from here, I come here. There's just stuff that's absurd and that's treated as a given that blows my mind, <laughs> and I do think that the overwhelming majority of Britain's problems are the English. Like that's just. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I mean, Scotland's got its own fucking fairy tales about how it wasn't complicit in slavery or an empire, yep. and how it's a Nordic social democracy when it's got probably more turfs per capita than England does. But like. <laughs> yeah. But let's be fucking honest. England is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this article is this article's great from a an English point of view um, and detailing like. <laughs> how blind England is to England. So a smaller nation post-imperial, post-EU, and possibly one day even post-UK has begun to emerge, and it's time the left caught up. Fucking, what a Interesting. Mm-hmm. Who's, this, who's this by? Julian Coleman. This is a name I've not seen before, so I don't know if this is somebody they've just like, dragged out a cupboard or... No, he's an associate editor of The Guardian. He he read, like He's written a whole bunch of... Uh, bits before that essentially say if Labour wants to survive in England it must become more racist 
Oh, right, he's one of them. Ah, Excellent. Okay. Gotcha. All right, okay, he's a red wall whisperer. Yes. <laughs> right, towards the end of his 1930s masterpiece, English Journey, J.B. Priestley writes of memories reaching from West Bromwich to Blackburn, Yarrow to Middlesbrough, darkly crowding in on me. The suffer- Fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> Just fuck right off. <laughs> then fuck off some more. Oh, I hate him already. Abge- Great, go. This is such a fucking Guardian thing as well. It's, it's just like, oh, I, I've I've read this abstruse little fucking book from the 1930s that only I remember because I've had an Oxbridge English, English literature or PPE uh, education. I mean, if I was going to be trying to make the left case for nationalism, I would pick the 1930s as my starting point of research. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'll continue. The suffering witnessed by the author during the Great Depression, he explains, turned him into a little Englander. That little sounds the right note of affection. It is little England I love, and I considered how much I disliked big Englanders, whom I saw as red-faced, staring loud fellows, wanting to go and boss everybody about all over the world. Patriots to a man. I wish their patriotism would begin at home. The writer lived up to the spirit of his prose. The Commonwealth Party, in which Priestley was a leading figure, was highly influential in the formation of the post-war welfare state. But it would be very unusual to hear such warm talk about England on today's left. In labour circles, the language of nationhood, when used by the English, engenders at best suspicion and more often outright hostility. Well, not anymore. It fucking doesn't. Well, Outright hostility. Mm, Outright hostility. Just for saying you're English. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Straight to jail via arrest. Brexit, an overwhelmingly English project, only deepened the conviction that rising nationalism in the United Kingdom's largest country is a much darker affair than its Scottish equivalent. Hmm. Yeah, checks out. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not Xenophob- football, so... Yeah, yeah, I mean, we'll try and avoid that, but yeah, that... There's, there's a little bit of a citation needed in amongst that because the, the roots from which Scottish nationalism David. draws are wide and varied and some of them David. are of the same ilk. <laughs> David, I'm inching my hand towards a big red button here. <laughs> Xenophobia, nostalgia for empire and cultural authoritarianism are judged to be its trademarks. That's English nationalism. Well, if, those are its trademarks. Well, like th- those yeah. are just its trademarks. Like, What else is it supposed to be? No, but this this guy's in favour of like little English nationalism, which is when you do blackface and make fun of the disabled. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. Um, If progressives are not, paradoxically, to find themselves on the wrong side of history, it might be time for the left to undertake its own English journey. English identity has become a fundamental feature of Britain's politics. The editor of the New Statesman, Jason Cowley. Oh, great. Is is completing a book, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England. In March, the Oxford University Press will publish an academic study entitled Englishness, the Political Force Shaping Britain. The zeitgeist is moving and England's left-leaning politicians need to catch up. Yes, the new statesmen and Oxford University, typically those at the helm of the zeitgeist. (laughs) Fuck off. Just fuck off. Go back and fuck off again. Is it possible to sprain your eyes from rolling them too hard? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to find out. Mm. A red, white and blue thread links the nationalism of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage to this tradition. 
but the end of empire and the rise of globalisation followed by Scottish and Welsh devolution in the 1990s chipped away at the foundations of what has been called Anglo-Britain. I don't know. I've never heard the term Anglo-Britain in my life. This, this motherfucker should not be allowed to write anything ever again. No. <laughs> Anglo-Britain. Anglo-Britain, yeah. Scottish Held nationalism. Held together by a red, white and blue thread, don't you know? <laughs> Is is Anglo Britain the opposite of the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, or is this is, is that the same thing? Or when, when are we going to get uh, the, the foundation of Jute Britain? What happened to Saxon Britain? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Scottish nationalism and the fallout from Brexit seems likely to bury it forever. In May, assuming the elections go ahead, the SNP is likely to regain an overall majority in Holyrood. Turbocharged by pro-EU sentiment, popular enthusiasm for IndyRef2 may become irresistible. I don't think this guy's been to Scotland. Like, Isn't the animating spirit of a second independence referendum independence and not some kind of jerk-off of the European Union? Yes. Uh, sort of. Sort of. Like, okay, like, it depends because as David kind of alluded earlier, there's more than one vision of what independence is and why you should want it in Scotland, essentially. Mm. And the thing that's getting the big inflation right now is, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, it would at least get us away from like the clusterfuck that is England, essentially. That's really gone on a turbo charge. And as like a subcomponent of that, it's, oh, couldn't we normalize trade relations with Europe again and, you know, deal, you know, get rid of all the Brexit bullshit. Like that's kind of, those things have kind of been inflating a bit. So he's like, he's not wrong to say that as a component, but he's reading that as a whole, which is a terrible, terrible mistake. Yes. But then he's probably never set foot in England, uh, sorry, in England, in Scotland, has he? Mm. The Brexit trade deal places Northern Ireland firmly in the EU's orbit. Even in Wales, there has been a surge in support for independence over the past year. A smaller England, post-Imperial, post-EU and possibly post-UK is taking shape. Interviewed by Andrew Marr last week, the academic Ilsa Henderson, co-author co of Englishness and a director of the Future of England survey, testified to a frustrated popular desire for politicians to treat England as England, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't hasn't English votes for English laws been a thing for like fucking 10 years now? Yeah. I'm pretty sure... Like that's a thing that it already is in in all who, ways. Who was this? Meaningful. Who was this academic that was on Mark? Because it, it sounded like like the the description of her sounded like it, she's some fucking think tank dipshit with a completely made up job. Ilsa Henderson. That's all I've got. Presumably over a Zoom call from jail for how English she is. Um, John Denham, <laughs> the former Labour MP and now director of the Centre for English Identity and Politics. Oh, that sounds like a cheery group of nice people I want to hang out with. That is the most cursed fucking job title I think I've this, heard all week. This sounds, this sounds like a bunch of fucking like dipshits of getting all riled up about like Scottish, Welsh and Irish independence and thought, well, we can have English independence. We, we could yeah. do it as well. Big Baz wants <laughs> a slice of the pie. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, Why is it White History Month? <laughs> <laughs> John Denham has written that political Englishness has been around for 20 years or so. Ignoring it or disparaging it contributed to the widespread rejection in 2016 of a wider European identity. Brexit at one level what? at least was yeah, Brexit at one level at least was surely the revenge of a repressed or unacknowledged emotional attachment to England, but Labour continues to steer what? clear of the subject. 
I mean, I don't think it's an attachment to England so much as an attachment to the idea that no one who isn't English should be allowed to live in England. Uh, <laughs> certainly not anyone who's not white. Uh, and I, I don't know. Maybe I'm the wrong person to ask, but yeah, the idea that a nostalgia for England, prom- I think more the massive, I don't know, disinformation campaign about we'll be richer and better and we'll kick all the foreigners out and send them all back to Pakistan or whatever the fuck Baz was saying. Like that, <laughs> that's, you know, the just completely nonsensical racism pea brain shit. That probably had more traction than people who wanted to like invoke William Blake or something like that. Oh no, but it's it's a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle because when they're invoking William Blake, they're invoking a mythical period of time during a romance poets where everyone was fucking white. Like that that's that's the that's the massive leap that takes yeah, place. Yeah, it's there. like I, I absolutely refuse to accept there was this Halcyon era where everyone in England was happy and prosperous because English people cannot be happy. Like <laughs> prosperous maybe, but happy no, never. No, that will not it's happen. True. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The American dream is to own your own house and your own business and to like basically be able to enforce whatever you want on your neighbors, uh, <laughs> especially if it's racism. The British dream is to watch the cops arrest your neighbor that you've hated for 20 years but have never <laughs> confronted. And did those feet in ancient times. And also, like, I mean, I'm sure it was some kind of emotional attachment to England, but the England they're referencing is the England of empire and the England of subjugation and the sun never sets. No, it's it's pure ontology, all of it. Like, they they want a thing that never existed. In his speech last month on devolution and the future of the United Kingdom, Keith, I refuse to say his name, referred to Scotland on 24 (laughs) occasions. England was mentioned just four times. The Labour leader pledged to devolve power away from Westminster to council leaders, males and regions, but the idea of England as England remains too neuralgic to broach. Again, English laws are a thing. And also, like, the not that I'm going to defend Keith, but, like, the reason he talked about Scotland more is because they're probably going to do another referendum and, you know, England isn't. Keep calling yeah. them Keith, yeah. we're all going to get murdered by that new super spy they've hired. <laughs> <laughs> As the academic and former Labour MP David Markin wrote in The New Statesman in 2016, this guy really likes The New Statesman. The notion that the English have to decide who they are and who they want to be is treated either as a backward-looking fantasy or romantically archaic. Yes. The derision heaped on Rebecca Long-Bailey's somewhat sketchy formula of progressive patriotism floated during last year's leadership elections reveals the depth of distrust. I mean, yeah... This is like the Brendan O'Neill article where the first paragraph makes sense and is totally agreeable. That that's this bit of the article. It's like yeah. What was that, that guy's name again? Uh, the, David Markin. Oh, Mark that Bond. prick! I remember why I remembered him. Um, he wrote an article in two thousand eight uh, saying that David Cameron offers inclusion, social harmony, and evolutionary adaptation to the changes of the age. <laughs> evolutionary adaptation. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's called survival and, of the fittest. You murder all the ones who aren't fit to survive, and the ones that are left, they survive because they were fittest. That's how it works, right? Yeah, well, that is how the DWP turned out, yeah. Yeah, and in 2010, he signed a letter to The Guardian uh, called The Lib Dems Are the Party of Progress and supported them in the general election. So let's yeah. listen to that fucking guy. He's all. More developed visions of how the left might change its relationship with England are out there waiting to be discussed. 
The writer and campaigner Anthony Barnett has made a compelling case for an English Parliament as part of a remade, federable, equitable and regenerated UK. Oh, yes. No, right, hang on, sorry. They polled on this a while ago. I remember this distinctly. They polled and said, would you be in favour of an English regional parliament um, to match with the whole, you know, Scottish one and Welsh one? And the resounding result was no. The English public were not in favour of it whatsoever. So why the fuck do they think they can bring this? Like, if they're saying that there is this populist sentiment that is not being acknowledged, this need for Englishness, they can't say that when they've literally, literally went to the public and said, hey, would you like an English parliament? And they've said, no, we like Westminster, thanks. Like, the fuck? But this is peace. What's it called again? Proud to be English or something? Is he is he at some point going to develop how the left is going to be more English patriotic or is it just, just garbage through throughout? Because, like, I haven't heard anything, like, programmatic or anything from this guy's fucking head, at least. I, was, I mean, it's all it's all going to fall back on. It doesn't really matter what they've said or what they think. Like, it's all built on bullshit. John Cruddis, the head of the Labour Party's policy review under Ed Miliband, oh. has argued that Labour, a party with a distinguished 20th century history of nation-building and bridging social divides, can wrest the idea of Englishness from the right. The English, said Crudders in 2014, are independent-minded, sometimes conservative in sentiment, but also radical in outlook, but they feel powerless to shape the future of their country. Sometimes yes, conservative in sentiment, that is a fucking citation needed. They're radical in outlook, as Nate said, in terms of how much they look forward to having their neighbour arrested for underwatering the lawn or overwatering the lawn. Yeah. Like, that's that's... That's what the fucking radical about. Never get Jesus. tired of hearing this bullshit about how Labour can win back the idea of like British racism for British people from the Tory party. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that that's a thing that can definitely happen. Really? It's the same it's the same fucking animus with like the Democrats after 9-11 continually trying to find ways to like tap into populist kind of sentiment of patriotism in the United States, like thinking they could somehow wrest it away from the Republicans. It's like doesn't work. You don't understand how this fundamentally works. One side of the country has decided the other side of the country are losers and they're essentially kind of cowed and beaten and, um, forgive the expression, but bitch made. And as a consequence to this, um, they, you know, run to the other party, which they see as being winners and strong. And of course, we identify the, the nation, which is their, like, surrogate psyche with the party of winners. It's just, you're not, you physically can't do it. Like, it, it does also, not compute. Like, the, the Tories, or, or the Republicans in that case, like, they're willing to offer you, like, the full fat Coke version. Like, Preeti Patel will literally, like, come to your house and, you know, throw your neighbor in, in, in jail and, and pull his fucking toenails out. You know, the, she'll do that herself. The Republicans yeah. have clearly shown over the last 10 years that they're more than happy to put children in prison camps. And, like... You the Coke Light version of this shit doesn't work because the other guys will literally just always overmatch your offer and then yeah. do it instead of well, you. It's, and it's not even it's not even just it. that though, is it? It's like you've got all these fucking people who are convinced that like Labour is the party of terrorism and it secretly funnels all of its money to the IRA and like Corbyn did the gunpowder plot personally and <laughs> Diane Abbott is like racist against English people and also can't count. Do you know what I mean? And like all, and the idea that you can somehow win these people round to labour is just baffling to me. 
It's for people who insist that stevia tastes exactly the same as sugar. That's the political equivalent, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, something needs to give. If the English left never bothers to engage with Englishness, its emotional reality becomes the de facto preserve of the right. Fears of pandering to nativism and legitimising nostalgia for a monocultural past are understandable. Memories of the rise of the National Front in the 1970s and more recently the EDL are still fresh. But what England is and can become need not be imprisoned within the embittered horizon of white English nationalism, or as he could have said there if he wasn't being paid by the word, English nationalism. Jesus yeah. Christ. So this the the gist of this is that this guy wants like you know to to have like nationalism, but it's nice nationalism. It's it's not like it's not about sending well, them all back. It's about like just being English, but nice English. And it's like if you if you're that desperate to belong to something, just join a fucking club. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> take up archery or some shit. Whatever it is, the middle classes do. I think you give him too much credit, Jamie. I think he really he's, the white part is still resoundingly there throughout mm-hmm. all of this. Like, if you wanted to, like, okay, so we're not doing Scott Paul. I'm going to preface that. But if he had made an argument about we can have, like, a civic nationalism and he'd gone down that kind of route, then you could you could disagree with him, but you could at least go, okay, there's maybe the bones of, like, a well-meaning argument somewhere in here. But they're not touching that with a barge pole. They're still instead making these appeals to a kind of revanchist nationalism yeah. explicitly. And that is absolutely the domain of the right. So... Closes the article off with the SNP in Scotland steered by Alex Salmond to the left of Labour, which like mm, didn't mm, mm, not really not hard. Um, understood That's... this successfully fusing social democratic values with national pride. Uh, the, the Scotland understander uh, uh, has logged on. Jesus Christ! Where Scotland led, its large southern neighbour can follow. <laughs> My large southern neighbour. Uh, <laughs> Never talk to me or my large southern neighbour again. Jesus. England has a greater level of inter-regional inequality than any other large industrialised country. A renewed sense of English nationhood can be part of a politics of social justice, greater decentralisation of power, and a reset relationship with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But to get there, the left must lose its inhibitions and find a way to talk about building a proud democratic, inclusive little England. So so the answer to this fucking bullshit is Matt Lucas should run for MP. Well, I mean, you know, like you said, we can take inspiration from our smaller neighbor to the north, as is commonly invoked in the story, you know, Philistine giants killed by slingshots can just learn how to shoot slingshots themselves. And, uh, you know, it's just... It's mind-blowing because that, to me... It completely ignores why there's a desire for Scottish independence in the first place. Like, I'm not Scottish. I don't live in Scotland. I don't have any family links to Scotland. But my impression is that a significant driver of Scottish independence sentiment is the desire to have some say over Scottish affairs and not have it dictated from Westminster, given that devolution does not really provide that much power in the first place. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly and understandably, people in Scotland are sick and tired, in my opinion, of dumping money in taxes to then go to completely bonkers English bullshit. Like, 
I understand it. And for better or worse, Scotland at least has some natural resources. Not a ton, but some. Certainly oil, gas, and the ability to build offshore wind. They could do some stuff with it. It might be nice to not be beholden to Baz and fucking Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, like, I'm winging it here. But it strikes me that that would be at least somewhat of an influential reason. And it's like English nationalism in opposition to what? Like, To me, the best case you could make for a sort of, let's call it liberal-ish English nationalism is probably closer to the part of the manifestos for the Labour Party under Corbyn in 2017 and 2019 in terms of like, mm-hmm. let's make this country the country it could be. That is mm-hmm. not English nationalism as it's presented in a North... Like, like I said, when you can't tell if it's a football flag or a racism flag, that's not really conducive <laughs> to progressive nationalism yeah. or progressive well, pro- patriotism, yeah. if you will. Well, the the tags on this, um, just just out of interest, the tags on this article are Brexit, the far right, England, Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson. So yeah, really targeting well, to be the fair, left they don't they, they they never had a left wing article before, and making up the tags just for <laughs> for one left wing article is is a bit overkill, right? We'll worry about it when they get a second one, surely. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I mean, just what is this? What, what are... <laughs> So whatever, like you're 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 a smart person in 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 Keith's office. Like, what the fuck are you supposed to take away from this? What is the the recommendation apart from Little England is actually cool and good? Like, what I mean, the f- what are you there, supposed there to take? One, what are you sp- there isn't one. This is when <sighs> this is someone who's absolutely balls deep in the. I understand what the problems of English nationalism are, and that they are fundamental to the concept. But. Just... What if they weren't, and that's all they've got? That's it. <laughs> normal yeah, article that's, for a normal that's, country. That's the article. <clears throat> yeah. It's, much. it's so typical that these fucking people are just like, of course they're the associate editors of The Guardian. This, it's, this it's fucking mealy-mouthed, yeah. you know, oh, we must accommodate the English and we must you know it's like fucking Keith on Vichy kick of family work patriotism where it's just like <laughs> you know what the f- yeah speaking of Keith alright sure let's go um, so uh, welcome to another installment of what we're calling simulated opposition uh, for a brief recap see the last episode I'm not going to repeat myself we have an AI model of Keith Starmer sorry Keir Starmer that we can ask questions to. And yet again, I have solicited questions from the pod crew and our special guest tonight um, to ask the simulated opposition, AI Starmer, about the hot issues of the day. To restate, the thesis of this is that AI Starmer would be a better leader of the opposition than the real thing. So I've asked her eight questions this week. And I figured we could uh, go through them together. It seemed to go down well last week. Rob, would you like to ask AI Starmer a question? Keith, Keith, uh, would you campaign to rejoin the European Union? Kia, yes, I would. All the lessons of history since World War II suggest we're stronger together with our neighbours. It's the most practical way to protect ourselves from threats in an insecure and unstable world. Compare and contrast to Keir Starmer's actual answer when people pressed him on that question, where he basically said, no, no, the time has passed, we need to focus on the future, but not actually really articulating what that would be. So, AI Starmer, off to a good start already. Fantastic. Uh, (laughs) Rob, here's another one. 
Um, well, I mean, it's quite topical, actually, given that all the, uh, you know, the, the ports are blocked to shit and the food's not coming in. Uh, Keith, what are your plans for the, for the food shortages we're facing? Um, so this is, this is just pure Starmer. Check this one out. Kia, we should seek to maintain our trading relationships with the rest of the world. We should also coordinate efforts to maintain our own food security. The countryside has a valuable role to play in feeding the nation. The government can help to support farming. But in the end, it is for individual farmers to ensure their businesses remain profitable and sustainable. <laughs> Amazing. Well done. Again, again, this, it came up with that itself. This is no editorialising from me going on here. Um, yeah, all right, cool. Jamie, why don't you give us the next one? Uh, what do you think about the royal family? Kia, I think the royal family are a great British institution. The Queen is a dedicated public servant. She has served not just this nation, but her role is also to be a unifying force at home and her celebrations in 2015 were an example of that. I'm a great supporter of the monarchy, so much that my son is called George. True story. He does actually have a son, but no one knows what the name of his son is. Fantastic. He keeps him out of public eye. <laughs> I feel play, but yeah, fuck's sake. Okay, maybe something a little less uh, airy-fairy. Do you want to ask us another one, Jamie? Uh, should we raise the minimum wage? No. The minimum <laughs> wage was a good measure 15 years ago. But since then, we've had technological changes which have reduced the cost of many essentials. Food, transport, communications. Now you can order basic foodstuffs and have them delivered free to your door. You can talk to friends and family on the phone or using messenger apps and social media for free. You can turn on the heating and cool your house for free. We need to accept <laughs> that the world is changing and make our policies fit that world as it is now, not as it was decades ago. Okay, so you probably caught that, right? Kia Starmer fucked up there. AI Starmer fucked up in his answer. So this is my question for week. I, I snuck one in. Um, hang on a second. Are you saying it's your policy that household heating and air conditioning should be free? Kia. Uh, no, of course not. That, that would be unaffordable. <laughs> the point I'm making is that technological change has radically altered the cost of living. Food, transport, communications have all become cheaper over the past 15 years or so, though the minimum wage has failed to keep up. The government needs to take these changes into account when proposing future policy. These are fast-changing times, and we as legislators need to adjust to them. Like, sake. It, it's really, it's, it's got him flubbing an interview line now. It's just it's brilliant. It's excellent. <laughs> Oh, dearie, dearie, dearie me. David, go and ask one. Here, some online commentators are saying it's socialism or barbarism and that you've chosen poorly. Why do you choose barbarism over socialism? Kia, I think that's nonsense. There are lots of effective ways to reduce hardship while preserving a free market economy. We could, for example, reform the tax system to make it more progressive. We could increase the tax-free allowance and focus taxes on unnecessary luxury spending rather than essentials. We could even explore having a universal basic income. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, Kiel, do you believe in a loving God? Okay, so this goes back and forth a bit. I didn't write any of this. This is the AI, like, basically playing with itself. Kia, yes, I do. Interviewer, what does your God tell you is the best way to help the poor? It asked that. I just love it. Kia. <laughs> Justice. The poor will always be with us, but that doesn't mean we should ignore their plight or abandon them. We are all equals in the eyes of God. Interviewer. That doesn't really answer the question. 
Kia, yeah, I know. That's because I don't have an answer to your question. Not every problem has a solution. Not every bad situation can be fixed. In the eyes of God, we're all equal in the sense that life is pointless and ultimately futile. All we can try to make like all we can do is try to make life better for some of us. <laughs> oh man. Fucking hell. I swear, it's channeling the soul of him. Like, Jesus Christ. And uh, it, like, it just gets better from here. Nate, do you want to ask the next one? Sir Kier, you- speaking of futility, how do you propose we bring peace to Afghanistan? Kia, I don't, and nor can anyone else. That country <laughs> has been the plaything of empires for centuries, and it will continue to be so long after we are all dead. all right all right all right just black pilled starmer (laughs) now a question that's very close to my heart uh strakir do you believe that being online until your brain explodes is a prerequisite for being a qc kia hardly most of my colleagues barely know what the internet is let alone spend their free time online no this is a stereotype of lawyers in general most of which are true, I'm afraid. Interviewer, what stereotype is that? Kia, that we're all amoral cynics. Interviewer, is that how you see yourself? Kia, of course. <laughs> Interviewer, thanks for your time, Kia. Kia, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Fantastic. Like, I honestly think the AI just became fucking suicidal in the last few questions. <laughs> it's not became, well, it has become suicidal, but only because it's became self-aware and realised what its life is as Keir Starmer. Pretty much. <laughs> fucking hell. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end it. So, Nate, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you get any plugs you want to do? Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on again. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you uh, are a fan of podcasts related to the Hell Island of Great Britain, I am a co-host of the Trash Future podcast. I also do a show on um, a left-wing take on military and veterans affairs. It's called What a Hell of a Way to Die. They are both available uh, on SoundCloud or you know any platform you use for podcasts. Right, okay, check them out, folks, and yeah, we'll see you again next week. Video. All right. All right. Bye bye. Bye. See ya. Bye.